Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, today I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Lindsay Pollack. She is a New York Times bestselling author and one of the world's leading career and workplace experts with a special focus on early career success. And Lindsay's brand new book is a response to the COVID crisis, Recalculating Navigating Your Career Through the Changing World of Work, published by HarperCollins, and it's available. Now it just came out and I'm excited to unpack her career story and dig into the new book and talk about what the workplace looks like now and what the workplace of the future might unfold to the big unknown there. So let's get to it. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. And I like to start every show because it's important to understand where people's expertise comes from and where their passions come from and how the heck did they get into the world that they're in right now. So let's go all the way back. Let's go back to college. And back in college, you know, you were inspired and you, you advise a lot of people on the same subjects. How did you first discover, you know, back in college that people and leadership was your calling? So I didn't realize it at the time. And that's a big part of my story. But the huge aha moment for me was my senior year of college when I became an RA. And I loved it. I had never been so happy. I thought college was about academics and extracurriculars. And I was like, right. I don't care about any of that. I love hanging out with the younger kids and mentoring them and, you know, telling them how to avoid my mistakes. So that really was this huge aha moment, which of course I then ignored for the next five years and <laughs> kind of went on and thought I should go into media and I should work in a magazine. So I started my career in the dot-com boom and I, it was fine. Um, I worked at a website called workingwoman.com, which I loved. I'd probably still be there, but it went bankrupt like a lot of dot-coms. And I had this gift that the CEO of the company, as we were like in bankruptcy, gave me my little purple Sony Vio laptop and said, take this and start your own business. You can do it. Wow. And I didn't mean to. I kept job hunting, but 9-11 happened really soon after that. And it was a really hard time. Reminds me a lot of the current COVID environment. And I started freelance writing and giving little workshops to like Girl Scout troops and junior achievement clubs. And I loved this idea of how we figure out our careers. So that was almost 20 years ago. I'm very self-taught. I've written four books and each one was the book I wish I had had like five years earlier. So my first book was Getting from College to Career. And I really kind of think of myself as building my career as an RA for life. So I probably would have been happy in student affairs or recruiting. I didn't know that stuff existed. I didn't know what HR was. So I now work with those people and I kind of wish I had started there, but this is kind of how it turned out. Listen, the, the, it's a journey and, and let's take it back. I mean, it's it, interesting. My brother was an RA at, at UMass 
And I asked, like, what was that decision? Was it was it a financial decision? Because a lot of people, they decide to be an RA to, um, you know, uh, defer some of the costs of college. Um, what was that reason? What was that, you know, hey, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be an RA slash narc. I mean, RA, sorry. <laughs> well, that's what I love about it. You're like, you're sort of like just cool enough to get their respect, but they also know that you're narking. So um, here's the funny thing, Adam. I don't remember it being a decision. Hmm. I remember it being like, of course I'm going to apply to be an RA. Like I just, it's a natural calling. Yeah. I don't remember (laughs) making the decision, which is really funny because everything else that I did, I remember sort of going for it, but this, I just feel like it was a totally natural transition. And what I do remember really, um, really acutely is loving it from the first minute. It was like, Oh yeah, this, this is right. This feels good. Mm And let's talk about, without giving names, but talk about a difficult situation you face as an RA that really, you know, looking back now in, in, the, in the books that you've written, in the speeches that you've given, a big lesson learned as an RA that you've applied now. A big lesson learned as an RA is probably the line of confidentiality mm. and um, having to build really authentic trust with a client. Um, but also knowing that it's in their best interest to get some additional support. So kind of that fine line between confidentiality and really that's helping important. somebody who's in trouble. And that's, and, that, and that's guidance here. So let's focus on early careers. And I look back on mine and, and I was lucky because I knew early on that I was going to get into business and marketing, but a lot of people don't know their passion. And they go to find that in college, the ones that do. Uh, and some do not go to college and they find their passions elsewhere. And, and you know, looking back on it now, I kind of understand why some people jump around because they're trying to find their calling. How do you translate that into conversations with, with young folks, with millennials, uh, people coming out of school where you're not sounding like the, the old man or the old lady in the room? I told back in my day I had an internship and I didn't get paid. Like, how, how does that conversation translate now? You know, it's such a good point that the problem is not getting what you want. The problem is usually figuring out what it is Mm -hmm. that you want. And in some ways, the more successful you've been in college or the better school you've gone to, it's harder because you have more choices. And so I find a lot of it is this sort of paralysis of, of choice, right? And so I do think then, you know, and I try not to say in my day, you know, but I absolutely (laughs) always say I had no freaking idea what I wanted to do. And I I didn't look at the signs. I didn't know. And often you're kind of constrained by who recruits at your school and, you know, what your Mm -hmm. friends are doing. So the biggest lesson I learned, and it is my COVID message, is you cannot figure it out in your head, right? You have to go out and try things. And the only way I figured out what I wanted to do was by actually interviewing and getting jobs and either liking them or disliking them. And that's really the absolute only way to learn. A hundred percent. I talked about that in a post the other day, my experience at American Express, how I thought it was going. I mean, it was kind of weird. Like I, I kind of had a hesitation before I even joined, but I did not enjoy American Express. I didn't enjoy my time there. Some good people, some people I liked, some people I didn't like. But for me, looking back on it, it was, I learned what I didn't like from a job function, a job role perspective. I didn't like the, the numbers. I didn't like the, the, the financial element of it. I didn't like the corporate culture there. It just wasn't for me. And now I knew moving forward uh, what I wanted to do. But, you know, you talk about young folks entering the workforce and it's tough. You know, some of them, you know, jump at that first job. They listen. They have many voices, you know, in their head. They don't know, you know, what they, what they want to do. And I think it's fantastic advice to say, try something because nothing's forever, right? I mean, job hopping is still a thing, but I think it's being perceived much more from a recruiter standpoint of, you know, hey, listen, they tried something. It's young in their career. I did that. You did that. 
let's not, you know, exclude or judge somebody uh, on that. There's so much more forgiveness. I remember being told if you leave a company before a year or even two years, two years you will yeah. be blackballed. And that is completely not true anymore. And I love what you said about American Express. It is really a good outcome to realize I don't want to do that. And I think people see it as a failure, but I actually think it gets you closer to success. But you don't know that when you're in the moment. Right. You know, I when I was American Express, I just remember every day dreading going to work and dreading, oh my God, I'm gonna have to sit in front of this whole team now and go over the financial reports and the monthly. I'm like, I hate this stuff. I absolutely hate this stuff. Um, I don't want to be doing it. I want to talk a little bit about leadership and, and you speak about the differences in the leadership styles between boomers and millennials. Let's unpack that a little bit. Right. Let's unpack, you know, I think it's important where the influence came from and how that kind of shapes their leadership styles. Love to hear your yeah, take. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my previous book was called The Remix about the multi-generational workplace. And and the reason that happened, again, I didn't mean to learn about the topic of that book, but as I study early career, you start to realize that everything is informed by the generations that came mm -hmm. before you and whether people perceive you as different or the same. And what a lot of people kept saying, I'm a Gen Xer. But what a lot of people are saying about millennials is they're so different. And so I had to learn, well, what are they different from? And what I realized was as a Gen Xer, I had been so indoctrinated in the leadership style of the baby boomer generation, which by the way, is the largest generation ever in the United States, even larger than the millennials. Millennials are larger now, but they never grew as big as the boomers. And as fast. Was a, or as fast. I mean, it was post-war. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Tremendously influential generation. And that was about power. That was about hierarchy. Um, it was certainly very white male dominated and every boss I ever had was a baby boomer. And so what you start to see is that generation is this really funny mix of kind of idealistic, you know, 1960s stuff, plus very competitive because when you have overcrowded classrooms and you have lots of siblings and you have this huge generation, people's elbows get a little bit sharp. So I think the sort of, you know, dynamic that I always think of the boomers is the sort of Steve Jobs versus Bill Gates. We want to change the world. We want to do huge <laughs> things, but we want to kill each other, you know, while we're doing it. That's a very boomer mentality. And what a lot of millennials say is I want to be successful, but that doesn't mean destroying the competition or right. I want to be successful and I want to build a great company culture. And so the difference is not the level of success or the ideas or the innovation. But I think the difference is why can't we make a bigger pie instead of kind of destroying the Coke versus Pepsi, right? Microsoft versus Apple. I don't think that fits as much with the millennial mentality. I, I and I completely agree, and I see it. But like, where do you think the um, the challenges are? I see a lot of young folks that are moving up into leadership positions, and I see that they just weren't groomed. I don't know. Again, sound like the old man. They weren't groomed the right way to understand some of those leadership principles. Where do you think the failing is in grooming people to be, to, or maybe maybe just the are they not in the right environments? Are they not surrounded by good people leaders themselves? Where do you see the gap? Yeah, I mean, there was a, a great statistic um, in the Harvard Business Review that the average age somebody becomes a leader of other people, a manager is 30, and the average age at which they receive any training whatsoever is 42. And so there's this, <laughs> Go, like, that, that math is not adding up. Delta of we don't teach people how to do this. I think it is hugely important. Now, I think because boomers were so competitive and because traditionalists were trained in the military, a militaristic hierarchical style made total sense. When you don't have that militaristic hierarchical training, it's like, well, if I don't have power because of my position, why are people gonna listen to me? Oh, I better be a leader worth following. And we didn't teach people how to do that. So I'm actually a really big fan of going back to the basics of the one minute manager, mm -hmm. seven habits of highly effective people. It's not hard 
to learn how to be a good manager, but you have to be deliberate in doing it. And I also think millennials see everybody as a leader and personal leadership. And I think that's a good thing point. to learn how to be a servant leader and guide others. But I think we don't teach it enough. And I think that's the failing, but that's on us. It, it is. And the, and the other piece that's really hard is the concept of feedback, giving it and receiving it. And I'm of the mindset of when I give feedback, solicited feedback, I actually have an idea for another podcast. It's going to be called unsolicited feedback, but that's a story <laughs> a for another title. day. But when you talk about feedback, you know, being able to give radical candor feedback in a way that's constructive, that's forward and creating an environment where the other person feels comfortable receiving it. And then as a receiver of feedback, understanding that this person is coming from the heart, they're coming from a good place, being able to not take everything personally and, and internalize it. What are your thoughts around feedback? A, it's really hard to not take it personally. And so you have to have a relationship mm -hmm. of trust, right? If you're my manager and I like you and I trust you and I really believe you have my best interest at heart, it's gonna be a lot easier to take feedback from you. So I think we have to really build that trust. I love Google's project Oxygen, the management What's study, that? which showed, it's basically a study that showed what is it that makes a successful manager? And this was at Google where they're super data-driven, right? And number no. one was my boss cares about me. Number two, we have one-on-one -on -one time together, right? So it was emotional this, like, relationship, emotional yes. and relationships, human, Trust. yeah, the basics. Human. So I think we have to go back to that and in a virtual environment with COVID even more, like the number one factor of whether employees feel engaged is whether their manager turns their camera on when they talk. It's whether we have one-on-one -on -one time. So I am the biggest fan of the one minute manager because it takes all the drama away from feedback. And it says every day, we have such a good relationship that I catch you in the moment doing something right. And I say, Adam, really like how you redid your shelves. And Adam, you know, Thank next you. time I think you should do X, right? So it's just that relationship of trust over That's time as opposed to the one annual review where it's right, the monthly check-in, continue, continue feedback. That's excellent. So let's shift. I want to talk about, you know, the first book that you put out, The Remix, How to Lead and Succeed in the Multi-Generational uh, multi Workplace. What was the impetus for writing that book? I'd love to, you know, understand, like, it's so funny when I talk to first-time authors and, you know, what drove you, what was behind the first book? So that was actually my third book. Oh, geez, sorry. I... That's okay. My first book, I'll tell you the story and I'll get to it. My first book was called Getting from College to Career. And it was kind of like my RA manifesto. I wrote it, no idea if anyone would buy it, about what I wish I had known when I went from college to career. And I interviewed a you know, bazillion people and told all my failures and stories um, because I wanted it. My second book was called Becoming the Boss, which is about becoming a first-time leader because I didn't know how to do it. And so I researched it. And the remix, the book that you asked about, was that I had always specialized in early career. And I love that niche. I'll be in that niche forever. But I realized you can't just keep your eyes down in your lane and no. not look at what else is going on. And so I said, I got to figure out what's the history here? What led to this moment in time? And why do I feel as a Gen Xer that I really am different from the millennials and the Gen Zs? And then recalculating the new book was, you know, when COVID hit in March of last year, and I was sitting there and went from a full calendar of speaking gigs to a completely empty calendar and said, how am I going to get through this? What am I going to do? And I thought, all right, go back to your original playbook. When you're not sure what to do, you research it. And so that's exactly what I did. So that's always been my model is what book is missing from my shelf that I wish I had. Oh, I love that approach. But let's talk about the multi-generational multi workforce. I mean, right now, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's at least three or four generations that are currently working. Five. Five. And the interaction, the engagement, the, you know, some of them are very similar, you know, as you, but there's differences. 
And you're also in a place now where you have boomers and gen, what's the newest one out right now? I don't even know what it is right now. Um, gen Z is the youngest, but then our kids are probably right. what they're calling gen alphas. Right. So the Gen Zs, you know, they're 21, 22, you know, entering corporate America. That's a huge app. They're basically, you know, reporting all the way up to their parents. And it's a, di and it's a different dynamic. Um, you know, how, how, are, how are you seeing, you know, these senior leaders adapting a positive way and being open to, all right, this is a new way. This is, you know, we're, we have to be more hands-on. We have to be more, you know, emotionally cognizant, that EQ element of it. What are you seeing out there? And how are you coaching some of the senior leadership to engage with the younger workforce? Adam, I'm so glad you asked the question in a positive way. What are the opportunities as opposed to the challenges? Because that's how I, I really like to see it. Um, so there are five generations in the workplace. The reason is not because young people are coming in. Young people have always come in. They always. It's, yeah, I mean, that's just the year. flow. That's the flow. The difference is people are working into their 70s and 80s. Yes, the retirement and age is in 55, like our parents, and they're in unions and in careers for 20 years, and they hit their mark, and that's it. That's exactly right. So yeah, we have the more financial Americans. stability is not there. It's not. Yeah. There are more people over the age of 85 working today than ever before. People are working longer, some because they have to, because of financial realities. I think COVID is going to lengthen mm -hmm. that even more. And some because they want to, because they're vibrant and they want to stay engaged. So I always say, look, we're more alike than we are different as human beings. The difference is in the expectations you bring to the workplace. So if I am a baby boomer, I expect that I will probably be on site, that I will probably have a desk, that I will mm -hmm. probably you know, interact. If I am a Gen Z, I will expect that you will give me high-speed Wi-Fi and that yep. you will probably interact with me on Slack. Doesn't mean we're different human beings. It means that I expect something different. As a Gen Xer, I didn't expect most of my bosses to be women. Today, I would probably expect coming into a company that half of leadership would be female. It's, it's again, not right or wrong, good or bad. It's that the times you engage in and where I've really seen this with COVID is I told you my story about you know losing my job right before 9-11. Have I ever been through a pandemic? No, but have I been through a really tough national it's tragedy? That I was very similar, enough? very similar. Yeah. And so I, I don't have all the answers, but I have some experience and that makes me different generationally from someone who has it. So it's not your fundamental personality, it's what have you been through? It's your experiences. And I think that's, yeah. that's the, big, the big shift in how you apply that. And you talk about 9-11, where it was very similar in the fact that we, but it was, I mean, listen, it was a single day, one time tragic event. This has been ongoing for a year, not they're apples and oranges, but the takeaway there was, there was a fundamental change in everything after that day. There was a fundamental change in America after March 13th, there was a fundamental change and there's a shift. There's a shift in leadership. There's a shift in thinking. Um, and a huge uncertainty. And, and a huge uncertainty. And I, and I think yeah. that's a big, the biggest part of it. And, you know, I'm kind of going off, off script here, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about yeah. the uncertainty and how, you know, leaders and, and people who are people leaders in organizations should really be mindful about the entire organization. And it's tough because, you know, one side of it, you know, I, I'm a believer that there's so much collaboration in the workplace, physical workplace, and we've seen great collaboration remotely. And I'm a big believer that there has to be a balance. There has to be trust. There has to be choice on the employee side. But I am of the mindset of, hey, listen, we were a lot of us were in the office beforehand. We loved it. There was collaboration in there. It was culture and vibe. And I think we're going to get back to it. I think we need to get back to it. There's a lot of people that can't work well from home, but we want the choice. The hard part of those conversations are going to be coming very soon. 
and companies open back up and they're asking people to come back in. How are you coaching, you know, your clients um, and even, you know, younger folks who come to you with those challenges of like, I don't know what the hell is going on. I don't know what it's going to look like. What should I do? That was a long winded, sorry, diatribe there, but no, it's so, it's so important. And, and what I remember about nine 11 was the utter uncertainty of what is the world going to look like tomorrow. And it was almost unseemly to talk about work. Right. And, and so I think in the early days of COVID, it, it felt sure. tacky to job hunt, right? Because there's so many bigger things going on. So I remember that feeling very acutely. So a couple of thoughts. I think the burden really has to be on leaders. I don't think the burden should be on an entry-level employee to kind no. of figure out and navigate this. So I really admire companies right now that are being clear in their communications. For instance, a company that says, well, I think we might go back in July, but it might be August, but it might be September. I think that prolongs the uncertainty. So if you can at least say you absolutely will not be asked to come into the office before September 1st, then you're able to decide Ma on your rent, decide your, on your parents. Manage expectations and make decisions. Hey, listen, we're going to so, stay up in Connecticut for the next three months. I'm going to extend exactly. this rent. You know, I can manage, you know, I have kids. We, we could figure that we could figure this out. So any level of certainty, and, I think, is really important. Right. I mean, you talked about it in one of your recent blogs, how important it was for leadership to focus on transparency. Is there any limit or ceiling on transparency? Like how transparent? I am pretty open on transparency. And I would always rather you're a little too transparent than a little too private. I believe in pay transparency. I believe in, obviously, you know, with legal issues aside, I don't think you should publish right. everybody's, you know, social security numbers online. But I think often if we err on the side of transparency, we're going to be in the right direction. Side note, and just kind of popped into my head. I've seen a couple of companies do this where they literally share everyone in the company's salary, salary transparency. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on salary transparency? I think it would lead to a more equi equitable world. I think the discomfort of it would be overwritten by the fact that we would be in a more equitable workplace. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of on the fence with that one. Um, and, I, and I think I'm skewed because of a, uh, I am a recruiter and I have the salary conversation all the time. Right. And it's just it, it's kind of throws that one, you know, uh, and, you know, kind of throws that one off, um, you know, a, a little bit here. But in your opinion, you know, going going back to work, what do you what do you think that magic formula is going to be? I, I think you're right. I think we're going back a lot more than people think we are. Um, if I had to give a prediction and I know that's a dangerous business, I think, A, we are creatures of habit and B, we are social people. Um, young people, I think, are driving this more than others. Work is social. Work is where you meet friends. Um, I'm very concerned about the mental health challenges of isolation. I think a lot of people are really, really struggling, and companies have to acknowledge that. And I think a certain number of people really like the flexibility. So what I would predict is, will more people have flexible schedules and work from home? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Can it be a differentiator for a company? Let's say you're recruiting two different companies. And one says, you know what, we're going to allow people to be flexible. And the other says, we're going to claim the office. That gives employees more choice. So I think in some ways it can be a differentiator. Do I think the whole world is changing and we're all going to work flexibly? I don't. No. And, and there's a lot of other pieces there too, namely real estate, lots of investments into that. A lot of jobs are, it, it's really important to be on site, especially from a culture standpoint. So let's transition and talk about, you know, the new book, Recalculating. Um, you spoke a little bit about the impetus that you were, you know, had this time on your hand, but where was that first, the first kernel? Was it going back to the idea of, all right, I know from my experience in 9-11 that folks coming into the market, folks in their career are going to face a lot of new challenges and I have some wisdom to share. Was that it? I mean, talk to us a little bit around the impetus of the, of the book. 
Yeah, so I was sitting in my apartment in New York City looking out the window. And I have to tell you, I've been fortunate to write four books. I've always struggled with book titles. And hmm. this one, the title came first, which has never happened to me before. It's a sign, um, Lindsay. I wanted to write. I knew I wanted to write about what was going on. I had started writing a lot of more LinkedIn posts, but I wanted to do a book. And I was looking out the window and I saw cars. And I thought of that moment, you know, where this is going, when you're driving down the highway and your GPS says recalculating. And I thought COVID is like this huge global moment when every single person on the planet was just driving along, doing their thing. And suddenly the GPS was like, nope, you can't go that way anymore. Every and one of us. Every single person. I didn't, I was perfectly happy in my business. I didn't want to write another book. I was like, that was fine. And so what I thought, when I really thought about it, because I love a metaphor, I thought I always actually feel kind of comforted when my GPS says recalculating, because what it means is it's okay. You, you can still better. get where you want to go. You just have to do it differently. And so I thought, all right, how are people going to do things differently to get where they want to go? And that was how the book was born. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the career search, how it's changed, um, you know, on a very tactical level. For the last year, there's not been on-site interviews, um, making it very difficult for both sides of the mm -hmm. of the candidate hiring equation. One, the candidate cannot see the physical office; they cannot meet the people in person. Uh, the interviewer is missing the body language; they're missing that that real human connection. Um, distractions, many many different distractions there. And then we talk about the talent migration. I spoke about it in a LinkedIn post the other day. To to your point earlier. There's folks that are going to want to be on site in the future, people that are wanting to be remote. There's so many unknowns here. How has the early career guidance changed in the last year? So remarkably, a lot is the same, right? I think the process of discovery is very similar. I think you have to still research Correct. employers. Um, there are a lot of, you know, online career fairs are not ideal, but they exist. I still recommend for young people to go to their college career center, even many years after you've graduated, you can still access that. So that's all the same. Strong what alumni I, networks. Strong alumni networks, networking, et cetera. What is different is it's now entirely mediated through technology. And the message that I give people is don't just wing it and say, well, you know, I'm used to networking in person or interviewing in person. So I'm just going to translate that online. It is a different skill that is mm -hmm. learnable. And so all you have to do is practice, which is practice looking into the camera. Most companies will give you the software in advance or they're just using Zoom. So look and see, am I looking into the camera? What is my box look like? How is my lighting? Record am it, I answering questions in a right way? Um, you know, have your answers prepped. Even with, you know, with job hunting, all I've ever said is it's all about the preparation. It's all about the research. So if you're going into an interview, for example, you know they're going to ask you, what's your biggest weakness? What are your salary expectations? Don't wing it. Do the work in advance. And that includes getting used to the technology. No, absolutely. And that's a piece of advice I give for anyone in, in their career. When an opportunity comes their way, some folks feel like, you know what? I'm happy where I am. I don't feel like going anywhere. But let me just take this call. And they don't put in the research and prepare for it. Next thing you know, they call me as a recruit, like, shit, I should have done more work. I should have prepared because I really like that opportunity. I think I butchered it. And then I go to the hiring manager and, and, and right, on, right on cue, that person had a great background, but they were not prepared. They didn't come with good questions. And that's another piece I say, too. At the end of every interview, I ask a candidate, do you have any questions for me? And if you do not have a single question, there's no bigger red flag. I might immediately exclude you from the search. That's your moment you, to shine. That's where you show you off that you've done your homework. Yeah. What are some what are some of those really good insightful questions, like kind of those secret questions? I'll tell you mine after you tell me yours. 
Okay, so there's two that I like. Um, and they're, they're not specific, but they're, they're conceptual. Um, you've got to be following a company on social media for, you know, from the minute you are interested or find out you have an interview, and then you pick something that you've read about the company and you ask a specific question. So, oh, I saw in The Economist that you have a green initiative. I'd love to hear more about how this job might work with that. So use something from the news or that they've shared in social. The second, I cannot take credit for, it's Ian Siegel of ZipRecruiter. He said, visibly take notes during the interview. And when it gets to the question, refer back to something that the interviewer has said and ask a question about that. So those shows are the you're paying attention. Like. Yeah. Shows, shows you're paying attention. So there's a couple of go-tos that I like. Um, the first one is, what does success look like in this role in the first 30, 90, 120 days? Because that'll enable you to understand, are you being thrown into the fire right away? And some people work well with that and that's what they're looking for and you're managing that expectation. Or you know that you're not gonna be set up for success and you can make that judgment call on your own. If they're looking at you to come in right away and do X, Y, and Z, you are gonna ask, how am I gonna be set up for success? What does that training look like? What is that onboarding? That's really a proactive question. And then when it comes to culture, I love to ask this question all the time for multiple reasons. I ask towards the end, Lindsay, what do you love most about working at this company? Because that's going to elicit a genuine human response from somebody and make them really think about why they love working here. Nine out of 10 times, it's going to be the people. That's going to be the answer. And that's what you love to hear. And then you love to kind of dig into that um, a little bit. Lindsay, who is this book for? So this book is for anybody who is A, looking for a job right now, uh, B, looking to change careers or transition maybe to uh, consulting or their own business, et cetera. And I don't know if I said one, two, and three or A, B, and C. Third is anyone who is in a job and saying, you know what, I can't coast. I need to kind of adapt. So I have a hashtag, we are all recalculating, which means it's for everybody, but it's really for anyone who's saying, I think I need to do things differently because of this past year. How do I reposition myself for success? No, I, I love it. And what would you say is the number one key takeaway from this book? We still want people to go out and buy it. We'll give the, we'll give the where to get it at the end. But like, what is that golden key takeaway? Can I please give two? Uh, uh, two. One's, one's gold and one's oh, silver. You can even do a bronze you. if you want to do a third. Oh, I love it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I have five rules for recalculators. I'm going to give you the top two. Number one is to embrace creativity, which is you cannot keep doing things the way you've been doing them. You have got to cast a wider net, be creative. When I found out that I could not, give speeches because there were no events, I had to get creative. So don't keep doing the same thing over and over and expecting Insanity. a different result. Insanity, as they say. Number two is to prioritize action. Going back to that idea of how do you figure out what you want? How do you figure out what to do? You've got to try. The biggest mistake people make is they don't apply to jobs. They don't network. They just sit at home and worry and wonder. Every conversation, every job application, every piece of research is going to give you some data point so you've got to get out there and act every single day. Lindsay, what was the hardest part about writing this book? What was your biggest challenge personally? So this is really um, kind of awkward, but um, I had oh, we like never... awkward on the podcast. Good. Oh, good, good, good. I thrive um, in awkward. It's how I built my my career. <laughs> I love it. Um, I had never addressed mindset in any of my books. I was like, here's what you do on LinkedIn. Here's what you do in the job interview. Here are my tips. You know, you and I have been very like tactical. But I realized like that is not going to cut it right now. There is such a well-being, mental health, mindset component. So the entire first chapter of this book is called Adjust Your Mindset, which is if you don't believe it's possible to get a job, if you don't believe that you are vibrant enough and active enough, you are never going to get anywhere. And so I had to kind of dig deep of, you know, the honesty and the authenticity that there are struggles 
there were bad days. I know I thought back to my experience at working women. I loved my job. I didn't want to get laid off. I had to mourn that and get over it in order to move forward. And so I really um, got much more kind of authentic and transparent to use your word about sort of the mental struggle of career change and transition. And that was yeah. a bigger part of this book than I've ever written about before. And it's hard to be vulnerable like that. I mean, it really is. I think vulnerability is something that's really emerged over the last couple of years where it's okay to express how you feel and be open and honest. I mean, I, I talk about that in my career journey and I've been talking a lot about that mindset piece. I go to the parts of my life and my career when I've been out of work and it goes back to that word tenacity and staying focused, eye on the prize. And there are days that are terrible. You're just sitting there looking at your computer, waiting for that email to come in. Why are they not responding? And being able to manage disappointment. Yeah, I think that's a huge, huge part uh, of the mindset piece. So let's let, let's bring let's bring it home here. And I love asking you know a similar set of questions to all my guests because it's the way I learn, and I love different perspectives here. So Lindsay, what is a single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? Keep building your contacts. Everything happens through people, and that's what makes it fun. So relationships are everything. Oh, a hundred, a hundred percent. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about our mutual love of peanut M&Ms. Um, I'm going to assume you're going to choose peanut over plain all oh, the time. Oh, please. Don't insult me, obviously. <laughs> Do other people I, choose plain? I don't understand. I, I, don't I personally mix it up. I'd say, about, I'd, say, I'd say I'm like 70-30 with the peanut. Um, I love plain M&Ms too. I could eat them like like nothing. Really? I'm but totally peanut, uninterested. I'm totally uninterested. But peanut M&Ms &Ms for me are like, they're kind of like a meal replacement, not a quality you know, nutritional meal replacement. Yeah, but they're, they're delicious. Basically health food. They're basically and health my, food. My one of my biggest vices is when I travel by myself, because if I'm traveling with my wife or family, I'll get shit for this. Mm. Is I will literally get like the family size bag of peanut MMs for a flight. Oh yeah. And that's my meal. Like literally, like I I, I will eat the you whole pretend, bag. I pretend at the Hudson News that I'm like buying it to bring back <laughs> to my family. I'm like, oh, oh, the kids will love this. Like the novelty one where it's a giant plastic head and I'm just on the plane. Just, Did you, you know, know you can buy um, office break room size from Staples? So that's my new my new go-to for my those, home collection. Do you freeze them? I freeze them too. Uh, I like them refrigerated. I don't I I like haven't them frozen. frozen. Yeah, um, but they, the come in, they, they come in that big giant plastic like gallon kind of looking thing and you, yeah, you can yeah, just yeah, watch yeah, the progress of how gross you are by eating them. Well, you like, should put little like marker marks on it, right? Like put a marker, like in a date to like track your, your gross. I don't want to know. Anyway. I don't want to know. <laughs> uh, Lindsay, you know, what, what would you say, you know, you do better than anybody on this earth that makes who you, who you, who you are. What is your superpower? Oh, I love that. Um, the goal, my goal, and I hope I achieve it is to take what I learn and translate it so that other people can learn from it. Oh, that's, that's, that's huge. And we've been talking a lot about the crisis, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, I like to focus on the good. And I like to talk about silver linings that have come out of the pandemic. And I love if you could share one personal silver lining and one professional silver lining that you've experienced over the last almost 13 months. Oh, boy. Um, personally, I'm going to go with friendship. I've gotten a lot closer to some of my friends. Uh, we go on walk and talk. So that's mm -hmm. been just a tremendous joy um, of the pandemic. It's always hard to find that time in real life. And I think right. we've all kind of carved that out. Um, on the professional side, I have gotten to know my clients on such a different level that um, it's really kind of opened my eyes that often it was like, hi, Adam, let's talk business, right? right? Or what do we need to get done? And it's just really opened up this entirely other side. So again, both of it goes back to relationships, as I've talked about, but um, 
I think it sort of has opened up opportunities to get to know people um, and appreciate them in a really different way. So that's been really beautiful. Oh, I love it. That's, that's fantastic. And last but not least, we all need to have a focus in life. We all need to have a compass that pulls us up when we're down. That is our guiding light, our guiding star when we need to harness that inner tenacity to drive us forward. And we also need something to look to, to show gratitude when we're happy with things in life and we're just content and we're feeling good. Lindsay Pollock, what is your North Star? I think my North Star is authenticity, being true to yourself, true to your family, true to your mental health and well-being needs and true to what you think is good in the world. So I'm going to go with authenticity. I love that question. I love it. And Lindsay, thank you so much for spending some time with us this afternoon. I appreciate you and your wisdom and insight and your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Awesome. And where could folks connect with you and where could they pick up recalculating? lindsaypollock.com and I'm on all the socials and I urge you to buy recalculating at your favorite independent bookstore, Shop Small. Yes. Awesome. And everyone watching us live, everyone watching us home, thank you for spending some time with Lindsay and I. You know where to find everything about the podcast at thepodcast.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. If you love this episode, please leave a comment, a review, a ranking. It goes a very long way into helping spring the great word of the podcast. Remember, take care of each other, stay six feet apart, and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.